Okay, so we're in the last part uh, discoursing the office of high priest and the office of uh, all of the Levitical sacrifices and offerings. And so <clears throat> what, you, what you'll notice about uh, many of the New Testament epistles is that the book always starts, or the epistle always starts with doctrinal issues. So it always starts talking about doctrine. And then finally it reaches a certain point in the book and then, it's, and then the, uh, the dialogue shifts from doctrinal, okay, now this is what this means and this is how, how it applies to your life and how it applies to your walk with Christ and how it applies to the life of the church. <clears throat> so we're making that transition now uh, in Hebrews chapter 10. I didn't quite finish up the notes last week, so I'm just going to go back over them real quick and, uh, and read them uh, on, page, on page two. We ended there, but just for context, I'm going to back up and read once again from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, where we read, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect for then would they not have ceased to be offered for the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away so you remember last week I said that just to, to to point out some of these phrases here, the law was a shadow. That is a, a dim preview, not a very, very clear image. It was just meant to point, point us or point the Hellenistic Messianic Jews to whom this epistle was primarily written, point to the priesthood and the ultimate sacrifice of Christ in the priesthood of Melchizedek and that it was a, a, a complete offering. So because the Levitical offerings were just a shadow, there was always a need to, rep to repeat them because one, it didn't even function to cleanse the offerer's conscience from the, from the consciousness of sin. And so every year, uh, these offerings, and then you know, if, if you were to read through the book of Leviticus and the book of Numbers, you find all of the different offerings, the trespass offering, uh, all of those offerings. And remember, remember, and I've stressed this multiple times, is that all of those offerings there were only meant for sins that were committed unintentionally. There was no offering for sins that were committed in, uh, intentionally. Okay, so, uh, so this has been... So I've, you know, I had this discussion with my rabbi friend probably a year, year and a half ago, and I asked him, I said, well, I said, you look, clearly those offerings there are for sins that were committed unintentionally. And he said, and so, you know, he went on to say, well, not really. So there's been modification of those, you know, of what the scripture teaches on that in the rabbinical writings that have occurred since then. But we stick to the scriptures, and so the scriptures are clear here. And so all of those offerings were, were, were to point to the one who would come and deal with the issue of sin and deal with the issue of atonement forever 
for those whom God has purposed to call unto eternal salvation. Okay, and that's where we pick it up in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Therefore, when he, that's Christ, came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God, previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings, and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ Jesus once for all. And so as I mentioned last week, this is a Septuagint quote of Psalm 40. And so what the author is doing here is he's, he's, he's pointing out to his audience that it was always prophesied that those offerings were not permanent, that they would be done away with. They would be done away with when the true offering, the true high priest came, Christ in the order of Melchizedek, by offering up his own blood to atone for not only not only the, uh, the, the, the earthly realm, I'll just say it that way, but also to atone and to sanctify the heavenly tabernacle. We looked at that several weeks ago. And so Christ's death perfects the sanctified. Reading at verse 11, And every high priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly, the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, that's Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about that one verse for a moment and what its implications are. For one, by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So let's, that's, a, that's, again, that's one of those, you know, this is, we do this, and we all do it, right? I do it. I mean, I'll read through, you know, I have a, a study program that I'm on, and in the morning before I come to school, you know, I'll, I'll generally do my devotions. You know, I just got done um, this, this last week reading through the book of Proverbs. And, you know, and so I try and move progressively through the Bible. But we read through Bible verses, and sometimes we just read through them without stopping to consider the ramifications of what's being said. So by one offering, the offering of Christ, he has perfected forever. That is a completed action with abiding results. I don't have the, the Greek New Testament here with me, but I'm pretty sure, Doug, if, if anybody can look it up, that that is going to be a past action. It's probably going to be in the perfect tense, a past action with abiding results. By one offering, he has perfected forever. Maybe, Pastor Roman, you can look up the word perfected and, and give us a sense of what the original word says there in perfection and dug the, uh, the tense. There he is. Okay. 
So by one offering, he has perfected forever. Notice that. It's, it's going to be past tense. It's going to be, my guess is perfect tense, right? It's a perfect tense, past perfect, or I don't, it's not a participle. Perfect tense. By one offering, he has perfected forever. Let me just give you a copy of last week's notes. We're down here on page two. These are last week's notes. Any luck? Perfect active indicative, okay? So it's, it's a past action with abiding results, okay? So perfected. Now, what, does the, what is the root meaning of the word? You should be able to look it up in the Strong's on your app if you get that app. Okay, finished, fulfilled. So by one offering, he has perfected forever. Now notice it shifts. Those who are being sanctified. Present passive participle, right? So, so, so that's pretty interesting there. Okay. Okay, let's, let's, okay. Okay, so by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he said, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. So one sacrifice for sins forever. And Christ is now seated at the right hand of God. So by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified, and the sins are remitted forever. That word remit means forgive or pardon. There's no further offering required. Okay, so that brings us down to uh, verse 19. Okay. So now, the first word that we encounter, let me get my notes over there. So on the notes that you have tonight, we're going to start at the top of page two. You can read the introduction on your own if you want, but I want to keep moving along here. So now, so now remember what I said in the beginning of our, of our class. All of the epistles, ex except for when you're getting into uh, apocalyptic apocalyptic literature but all of the epistles they always begin with the doctrinal content you see that all along but at a certain point at a certain point it shifts okay this is the doctrine this is what the Bible teaches now this is how you are to apply it to your life and your walk with Jesus Christ you know uh, Pastor Roman and I have been having some dialogue about you know where the two meet, right? You, you, have to have, you have to have knowledge, right? But that knowledge has to be applied, right? And you can't have application without proper knowledge, right? And so the two have to meet, and they have to, they have to fit together, you know? They have, to, uh, they have to combine into one. So verse 19 begins with the word therefore, 
And so what that word is telling us, therefore, is on the basis of all that's been discussed up until this point, and there are still a couple I'm more. I'm sure I understand. Me neither. Up until this point, now, okay, this is what we are to do with it. Okay, so beginning at verse 19, we read, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Okay, we really have to, uh, it's hard for us to understand this because we're coming from a Gentile perspective. Okay, so if you were, if you were a, a Jewish person and you were living during this time and someone came up to you and said, you have boldness now, you can go ahead in and enter the Holy of Holies. Yeah, not me. Remember what happened to, I think the, uh, the, the priest's name was Uzzah, when the cart was being moved, and, and it, first of all, it was not to be placed on a cart of oxen, it was to be carried by Levites, so they went wrong there. The ox stumbled, the ark started to tilt, the priest, he was just being a good guy. He just put his hand out to steady the ark, and boom, God killed him on the spot. On the spot. So now imagine that I'm coming to you, and you're, you're a Jewish person, and you're, you're struggling with all of these things, right? Let's not forget. They were, it, it was costing them a great deal to embrace Jesus as the Messiah. They were... They were being persecuted. They were being shunned and ostracized by their family. Uh, in many cases, they had their goods confiscated. Now, on top of that, they were struggling with the revelation that this Messiah, his, his revelation carried more weight and was higher than that of angels. Now you're telling me, on the basis of all of this, and I'm struggling with all of this, that I can go right into the Holy of Holies? Yeah, you're nuts. I'm not doing that. And so that's how we have to understand this, this, this command to boldness here. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having, that's, let's, let's stop and talk about that for a moment. That kind of just struck me today. Through the veil, which is his flesh. How so? Through the veil. So now it's pointing to the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, right? Now it's equating that veil with the flesh of Christ. How so? What do you think about that? So, this just came to me now, but in my mind, I'm thinking of Philippians chapter 2, right? Who, 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 you know, well, let me just go there and read it. Philippians chapter 2. In verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, 
who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So what was the veil? The veil was to do what? It was to separate the holy place from the holy of holies, but it was also to act as a barrier, right, for, for to, to, uh, to not allow the Shekinah glory, the Shekinah, to shine forth outside of the most holy place. Now think of Christ, his deity was in a very real way during his earthly ministry veiled by his humanity, right? And there were, t but there were a couple of times when it shone through, like on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? And so, so that's pretty interesting there. Okay, picking it up at verse 21. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of the faith, of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. So what comes next there in the notes is some is is tech, technical, grammatical stuff, um, but the well, let me just go through it. So let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance. Let us is in the middle voice, which is something that you must do, which action impacts you yourself. In other words, an illustration would be, I feed myself. So we are ourselves. Uh, we are to move ourselves to draw near in full assurance of the faith, right? And so, and so that's not something God is going to do for us. He wants us to participate in this. We need to take ourselves and, and propel ourselves to draw near to him in full assurance of the faith. So uh, drop down to point, sub-point C. So it actually equates to this. Let us bring ourselves right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting him. So again, we have to consider this within the context of the original audience to whom it was written. The Messianic Jew would shudder at the thought of walking into the holy place, but here the enjoyment is you move yourself into, into the place where God is, fully assured and fully trusting that the way has been made open for you. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God. So that word boldness there means free and fearless confidence. Our hearts have been made genuine. That word genuine means really proceeding from its reputed source or an author. And there's a quote there of Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 26. So, so you'll notice there that there is a um, there is a a contingency, right? So, so we are to draw near with our hearts assured that God will receive it, will receive us. Okay. So 
the, the idea is, what is that contingency based on? Well, so how do we do this? So this is the thing, right? Again, it's hard for us to make the, the transition, the translation, because of who, to whom this epistle was originally written. But we have, it still applies to us, but it kind of loses its, its, uh, its ominous tone, right? We, we don't, we've never seen anybody struck down by the Shekinah glory come into the presence of God. You know, we, 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 we really haven't, I mean, we've probably seen it, but we, Christianity today tends to emphasize the lovingness of God, right? But what about the justice part of God, right? And so, so we don't see it to the degree that the Israelites saw it, right? The, 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 you know, the, the, uh, you know, when he says, whoever approaches me has to be holy, he means it, right? And nothing holy can stand in his presence. Okay, so we're told now that we can make this approach and we can have full assurance of faith. And so I thought about this, okay, so what does it take I mean, we all have faith, right? And, and our, our faith isn't, isn't static, it's dynamic, it grows, or it's supposed to grow, right? Faith, I think faith, I think we can all attest to the fact that faith, it, it goes through states of contraction too at times, right? But on the whole, faith grows. So what is required for our faith to keep moving forward? Right? We, ha we have the presence of the Holy Spirit, so, so we've been made alive, and in that, in that being made alive, the gifts of faith and repentance are, are imparted to us. But faith grows. I don't have, I, I don't have the, the content or the, the quality and the quantity, I'm not sure if quantity is the right word, but I'll use it anyway. The faith that I have now is much stronger than the faith that I had 30 years ago. So it grows. So what is it necessary, what's necessary to keep that faith growth going in the right direction, where it's getting stronger, where it's expanding over time? Okay. No, I'm, I was thinking this to myself, okay, as I thought, thought this. Okay. So let's pick it up at Hebrews 10.23, because this is where we... This is where we get to the bottom of this. In Hebrews 10.23, we read, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast means let us stick to it unshakably and unbendingly. And again, I'm going to nautical illustrations here. The pilings to which a pier is secured, no matter how well constructed the pier is, if the pilings to which it is attached are not driven deep and immovable, everything attached to them is in danger of collapse and being swept away. So we're told to hold if fast, immovable, unwavering, which is bending to either side. Now here it comes. Now here is where it really comes into the, the application. We are to hold fast. We are to, to be anchored like those deep piers in an immovable way, unbending. 
How does that happen? How is, what is part of the process, at least, of that taking place in my faith life and in your faith life? Well, that comes in verse 24. Look what it says there. And let us consider one another in order to store up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Okay, there's a lot there. So let's break it down a little bit. To consider one another. So these are, these are commands, by the way, that's in the imperative mood in the Greek, which is the, which is the mood of command, right? So we are to consider one another. So to consider one another means to observe with the purpose, not of judging, but of coming to understand one another. Okay, what is required for that to happen? What is required for that to happen? To observe with the purpose, not of judging, but of coming to understand one another. See, this is, this is where we, we make the application, right? Okay, anyone else? Doug? Well, yeah, but it's, uh, it's observe, uh, observing, but it really speaks to spending enough time with people to get to know them. Well, just to know who they are as an individual, right? I mean, we all have our idiosyncrasies. I certainly have mine, right? It's been pointed out to me several times by several individuals. But, and I own them, right? I, I have my idiosyncrasies. I also have my insecurities, right? And so, so if you come at me in the wrong way, yeah, that's what's going to happen. And so that's what it's talking about. We are to consider one another, to spend time with each other, getting to know each other. I can't, you can't input, I can't input into your life if I don't know at least m at more than just a superficial level what makes you tick. Because you won't receive it from me. Because chances are my delivery of it will be wrong. And you'll end up in a confrontation or you're, you'll end up in conflict, right? So what, that, what it's saying there is we're to consider one another to observe, as you pointed out, not with the purpose of judging, but of coming to understand one another. Why? In order to encourage each other to love and good works. 
So that should be the ultimate aim. You know, so uh, recently someone pointed out to me Ephesians 4.15. Let me just read it to you. Um, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you because it's, it's in, the, in the context of um, just someone that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to help work through a few things. Ephesians 4.15 says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head Christ. So that phrase, speaking the truth in love. Okay, so what that means, so that there's just a few words there, but that is, there's a, that's a mouthful, right? You have to speak the truth in love, which means that your delivery method or the, the very purpose for you speaking the truth has to be an act of love towards the individual or the situation that you're speaking that truth into, which means it has to be delivered in a way that the, it, the individual or the situation will receive it as love and not judgment or condemnation, which in turn means you need to know something about the individual, right? So there's a whole progression of things that need to take place there for that to happen. That's kind of like what the author of Hebrews is saying here. And then it says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. And that phrase, not forsaking, means to leave behind the coming together. So uh, you'll notice what I have there within the context of the modern church, gather for Sunday school, morning worship, singing prayer, sermon, goodbye. For the most part, that's it until it's time to do it all over again on the following Sunday. That's not what the text is saying here. That's what it's become many times in modern Christianity, but that's not what the text is saying here. Yes? In the context of this picture here, something says to the gathering of saints in context of a relationship. Yep. Because you're coming to that other person in speaking the way that you know that you have a chance of being heard. And they're hearing it an understanding of this relationship that you're doing it for their best interest and not something else. Right. And that takes work. It takes work. It takes investment. And it takes time. And it's, it's not going to happen, you know, outside, really, of the context of the local body, so to speak. I mean, you develop relationships and you go have coffee and things like that. But... All of this is, this <laughs> when a church is doing this, this is what the, a church firing on all eight cylinders looks like, yeah. right? This is happening consistently, systematic across the board, yeah. right? And so this takes work and it takes intention, you know? It, yes? Well, I think, I think part of the, the conversation there, too, is also being the person that's willing to receive it. Like, we're, we're, all, we're all speaking as if we're the ones always doing the encouraging around here. Um, but... The, the, the exhortation here is not to, not, to, not to forsake, right? And I think every one of us, if we're going to, you know, argue which side is the harder struggle, it's many times being on the other side of it. Right? On the receiving end of it. Receiving end of it, right? Yeah. Which, which means, okay, I don't really want to hear it from that person. I don't really want to be around those people. I don't really want to be in this context of the local gathering, if you will. Yeah. Right? 
And, and, and that's why I think the key to that is the exhortation, right? It's the encouragement that needs to be a priority for those, if you will, members that are interacting with one another. And yeah. to your point you said earlier, it takes time for someone to melt in it, right? Like, that's the, one of the hardest things for me is people in the beginning, like, man, Pastor Roman, you're almost too hard on me. It's because I care. I, I, I promise you, it's just maybe, maybe it comes across a little differently to you because you don't know me well enough either yet. But that's where time, time yeah. has to be taken. Yeah. You mentioned in the first or second question, this is way, way, way more like discipleship. Well, well, you know, discipleship groups <coughs> plays a component, but I think what we're talking about here is building relationships. Absolutely. Right? And so the disciple, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the strongest discipleship takes place within the context of relationships. Right? And so you establish, you get to know each other. You, you're involved in each other's lives, right? And so that's, that's kind of the medium. I mean, look at Christ. He lived with these guys for, for three years, you know, and that, that was the habit of rabbis of that time, right? You, you, you applied to a certain rabbi, whether it was Gamil or Shimei or whoever, and if you were accepted as, a, as someone who would be discipled, you would essentially live with that rabbi, you know, within the same compound, right? And so, so the key is establishing relationship. And so, and so, you know, Pastor Roman brings brings up, you know, a, a really interesting point. I think. Well, I, I'm not going to speak from. I guess I'll speak for myself. I can't speak for everybody. Although I think, I would be speaking for everybody. None of us likes to. You know, at first glance, be corrected. Right? And what it all depends upon is, is if you know, you know that this person who is bringing this correction into your life really cares about you. They've taken the time to get to know you, and they really care about you. Right? And you know that old adage, it's, it's there on the page somewhere. Um, where is it? A person won't care what you know until they know that you care. So, so it's building relationship. So, unfortunately, I think, I don't know what it's like in other parts of the world, but I know that in modern American Christianity, this has equated to Sunday, right? And maybe midweek, midwe midweek prayer meeting, but I, I think it should be more than that. I'm not saying that we, certainly not that we're going to sell all, all our goods and move into a commune. But I think that, you know, the relationships should be more than just once a week or twice a week. We should be involved in each other's lives. Okay, and that's where the discipleship takes place. Okay. It takes love, time, and commitment. And First uh, uh, John 4.20, I'll just read it. Pastor Roman will... Uh, We'll expound it when he crossed paths with it later on in his study. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother. Now, the word hate there doesn't mean, well, I'm, no, I'm not going <laughs> to, I'll leave that to you. And hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Right? 
God wants you and me to bring ourselves near to him with boldness. He has removed all the obstacles. He invites us all to come. That boldness is predicated upon our being steadfast in the face of life's distractions, in the face of the many hard things that come to us in our lives, in the face of often falling flat on our faces in sin, to a steadfast believer, to be a steadfast believer is to be a strong believer. A believer does not leave behind, fail to spend time to get to know and love his or her, her brothers or sisters because they are spiritually weak. Rather, they are spiritually weak precisely because they have left the assembly behind. This puts the weak believer in a very dangerous place. Again, Hebrews 10.25 says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. That's an interesting there. That's another one there. The day. What day is that referring to? Right? The day of the Lord. Right? There is the day of the Lord. But there's also this other particular day, that's mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6, the evil day, right? The evil day is not one particular day on a calendar. I think it is a evil day that we will all experience at least one, in, one time or more in our lives. Ephesians 6.13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Those seasons that come into our lives where we are tried, tested, tested, shaken to the very core of our being. So many believers fall hard during these times and pierce themselves through with many sorrows because they think they can go it on their own. Or even worse, they turn to the world and unbelievers for help. Everything that we need has been given to us but it is actualized and made unbending in the context of the family of faith. A pier that is loaded with boats has a much better chance of surviving a hurricane than one that is not. And I'll just close with this quote from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not easily broken. Yes? Oh, yeah, of course. Of course, I mean, you know, uh, the, our fellowship is, is within the context of God's word, right? Because, I mean, you can have fellowship as a Buddhist. You can have fellowship as a Muslim. You can have fellowship as an atheist, right? But that fellowship has to be filtered through a biblical worldview and what the scripture says that fellowship ought to be, 
So fellowship, the koinonia, is always fellowship around God's word. It's not koinonia without God's word. Okay? So we, we have to be really careful with our t when, we, when we define our terms, right? When, so when we talk about having good marriages, right? Buddhists have good marriages too. So does a Muslim. But good marriages within the context of a biblical worldview. How do the scriptures define a good marriage? Right? Well, it says some things there in there that you won't find in the Quran. And you won't find in the in the Hindu scriptures. Right? So so we we just when we we just need to make sure that when we talk to people, like, you know, out in the street or in the supermarket or whatever, a good marriage, right? Well, a good marriage to someone who is you know, I mean, nowadays, you know, you have open marriages, right? If you're an open marriage person, then a good marriage will be what? To an open marriage person. So it's always, always important to define our terms properly within the context of a biblical worldview. So there is no fellowship for us. The fellowship of Christ always centers and revolves around God's word. That's the prerequisite. Yes? Just one more thing, Pastor. You, you had it earlier uh, that I got off track. And I, I will say, I think you and I both, especially as pastors, are really kind of seeing this for ourselves, um, is that when believers fall in hard times, they experience themselves through many sorrows. And I think the hard part is that last part that you said, even in worst case, turn to the Lord and unbelievers for help. I think that's one of the hardest things sometimes to when you see a person struggling with sin, when, they, when, when they're in the depths of not just depression, but sorrow, they're going through hard times in their life, and you're wanting so badly to reach out to them as a fellow believer, not just as a pastor, but as a fellow believer, like, listen, you know, we want you back in the fellowship, we want you back here, you know, around the Word of God, and these people go, no, you don't care, you don't love me the way I should, and, and, it, and it's just, it, it breaks you as, as, as a fellow believer to see that they, the first person that gives them attention out there, they just get sucked in. It's this deception. They just fall right into it. Yeah. So-and-so said hi to me out there. They really love me. They care for me. And all the things and years that have been invested by believers I are deleted out of their mind instantly. I, I, feel more, I feel more love from unbelievers than I do. For, how many times have I heard that? You know? But, you know, there's, there's something here to consider, and I'll just mention it in passing here. You know, I was sitting down and, you know, there's the men's breakfast tomorrow, and I was, Mark asked me to bring the devotion, and I was originally going to bring it on power and authority, but it's because there are going to be little kids there, you know, I need to knock it down. Uh, but I was thinking that, you know, when we think in terms of, of reality, right, we think in terms of physical and spiritual. But in reality, that's a false dichotomy because the two are interwoven. So ultimately... As a what, what what you're doing as a pastor, right? And you you've got you've got the the sheep that's gone astray. Is you 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 look at that you look at that person, they're they're wandering off, they're astray, and you know they're getting involved in things that they shouldn't get involved in. And we go, man, but it's important to look through that and ultimately realize that this is ultimately a spirit. It's a battle that is taking place on the spiritual plane that this person has come under the influence of 
satanic forces, right? And, and it's hard for us to, to realize that this is ultimately where the battle takes place. We, we, it seems like we're at a disadvantage because we can't see what we're up against, but we have to take God's word that it's there, and we have to use the tools that God has given us to go after that person, right? And so one thing I've never done, and I've been criticized over it over the years, is I never give up on anybody. I don't give up. I never give up on anybody because I don't know what God is going to do 10, 15, 20 years from now in that individual's life, right? So I don't give up on people. I, I, I won't, you know, if they're, if they're battering me in some way, then I'll keep my distance, but I'll never give up on them, right? And so because God, I'm even surprised now as a 65-year-old man that God hasn't given up on me yet. Because let me tell you something, there are things in my life that I absolutely detest. You know, and I'm, I'm right there with Paul. The thing I hate to do, that I do. You know, I hate that. I hate that thing. Why do I keep doing that? Why do I keep thinking that thought? I hate that. You know, and then I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'm right there with Paul, you know. That it's not me, but sin that dwells in my flesh, right? And then there's the, therefore, there's no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So it's important, like, when we're dealing with people who ha are forsaking the assembly. I, you know, sometimes, and I've said this over the years, sometimes they need to be out swimming with the great white sharks for a while. Let them swim with the sharks. And when they come back all bitten up and tattered, then you bandage them up. Galatians chapter 6, right? You who are spiritual, restore such a one, right? And then, and then you keep moving forward.